Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here with Will Slaughter, who is a professor at the uh, Sorbonne in Paris and also the author of Who Owns the News? A History of Copyright. Wow, Will, the news is in the news right now quite a bit, right? As is copyright, as is intellectual property and fake news, social media. And you're an historian. In this book, you had a little bit of it, stuff at the end that referenced some contemporary issues. But I think that throughout, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking how relevant so much of the history is for what we're seeing happening right now with social media. So let me get started just by going back in time and asking you, why did you become interested in the history of copyright and in particular news, which is really a very special issue in the world of copyright? Well, I actually became interested in the topic. I had done my doctoral dissertation on the history of newspapers and the circulation of news in the 18th century, in the age of the American Revolution. And then in 2009, there was a lot of discussion, as there still is now, although some of the issues have changed, about the crisis in journalism. And at that time in 2009, the crisis was seen mostly in economic terms. There was a lot less talk about disinformation than there is now, but there was a talk about the survival of newspapers. And it was a year and the year before and that year and the year after the number of newspapers that were laying off staff and that were maybe even closing entirely was getting a lot of attention. And one aspect of that debate about how do you finance journalism was the question of intellectual property. It came up in sort of general discussions about the morality or unfair practices of copying news and the general idea that it was not right for blogs or internet aggregators or search engines to be able to basically free ride on the, the labor and work of news companies. And I thought to myself, I had become sort of well-versed in the history of the press and in the history of copyright as well. And I couldn't really think of any histories that had been done of that. And it just struck me as a kind of interesting topic because news, as you say, does seem like something quite different than, say, a novel or a feature film or a music recording. And so I thought, well, what would it mean to have copyright in news? And when did copyright become available for news? What have sort of been the, the history of that? Has it actually been a factor in the production and circulation of news in the past? And so I thought, well, my contribution won't be to try to predict the future or to try to figure out how to pay for journalism now, but to sort of go back and look at the fact that these questions had a deeper history. Well, look, the production of news, just like the production of anything, whether it's production of literary content or the production of a new process for manufacturing linens or something like that. In order to get people to do this, they need to be rewarded for it somehow up to some point. And so we've come up with a lot of different ways of making sure that the incentives were there. If we go back to the 18th century or even further, if we go back to the 17th century, right, before we had general incorporation, before we had anything that would be recognizable as intellectual property, we kind of relied on this, on the guild system. We kind of relied on corporate charters and, and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about that system in general and how it applied to the production of literary works and news? Were they viewed the same? Were they viewed differently? How exactly did the stationers and the other guilds work? 
Well, news was largely subject to the same or very similar rules as other printed texts or engravings, other productions of the press, because of the way, as you're suggesting, because of the way that the printers and booksellers guilds were organized and the way that the states throughout Europe and in the book, I particularly talk about England, but there were parallel stories in other European countries as well. And then on the other hand, it was also different in the sense that from a very early date, news is treated as a sensitive topic, politically speaking and diplomatically speaking. And so you have that sort of double interest from the beginning. But basically what happened was in the early modern period, the presses were regulated. In England, for example, only a certain number of master printers were allowed to set up shop, and they were supposed to be part of the London Printers and Booksellers Corporation, known as the Company of Stationers. And that was based entirely on London, so there weren't supposed to be any presses in the provincial cities, for example. And you could describe it, a lot of historians have described it as a kind of deal between the monarch on the one hand and the corporation of stationers, the stationers company on the other hand. That is to say, the state had an interest in having one main interlocutor, one main group that would have a monopoly on printing and book selling in the kingdom. And in return, this group enjoyed that monopoly and the ability to sort of police its own members and determine standards of quality for the trade and so on. And that helped with censorship because there wasn't like a full-fledged censorship police. There wasn't a lot of agents going around checking. There was a fairly thorough reliance on the guild to police its own members. Technically, everything was supposed to be submitted to a royal censor, but the percentage of texts that actually were perused and controlled in that way seems to have been pretty low. So there, that was the sort of basic system. Then I would say that news was given special scrutiny and there were licensors appointed for news on several different occasions at sensitive moments. And then that would again be a monopoly system where the, the licensor would basically trust a handful of printers and booksellers to be able to issue news publications. And those would basically agree to not deal with certain sensitive topics. And that was a way of kind of controlling it. That also meant that their competition was restricted. It kind of, in a way, reminds me of what the FCC did in the 20th century with the allocation of bandwidth to a very limited number of broadcasters, right? We think back to the golden age of news in the U.S., right, which is pre-internet, where you had NBC and ABC and, and CBS. I think those franchises, there was a, something of a deal there as well. Maybe not that the official state line was used, but there were rules that were going to be followed and they may have been ethical rules. They may have been far better than the rules that were being adhered to, but there was this limited entry and limited entry meant that there were rules that the journalists could presumably enforce on one another without fear of defection. I think that's absolutely right. The history of radio is very different than the history of the press, especially in the United States, precisely because there was the airwaves that were regulated in that way. The different countries took a different approach. As you know, in Britain, there was a decision fairly early on to have the BBC have a monopoly, whereas in the United States, it was open to competition. But as you're saying, you did have to have a license. So there was perhaps a sense that there was a responsibility and a sense of accountability. And people in recent years have often looked back with perhaps a bit too much nostalgia 
at the fairness doctrine, at least in principle, it seems like something that we could use now. Some people have said, well, it didn't actually always work out that well. It didn't always really lead to both sides given equal treatment. But on the other hand, it was a principle and it was something that was there and it was attached to the license. It was something that was potentially where the state could intervene. Now, I think in the, in the legislative history, it was the statute of Anne that really created a big break in terms of how copyright began to apply to different types of production, of intellectual production. How did news begin to diverge from other kind of literary productions in legal history? I was very interested in that question because I knew that the 18th century in Britain, there was decades-long struggle between booksellers in the middle of the 18th century. There were publishers based in Scotland, notably, that wanted to reprint books that were being printed, that were being monopolized in London. And they claimed that, well, you know, the Statute of Anne is supposed to expire after a maximum of 28 years, and you're still holding on to this. You're still claiming that you have a perpetual right, even though the statute says that. And so this led to a great struggle and a series of court cases and lots of articulate arguments about notions of literary property. On the one hand, there were people saying it was a simple grant of the state and therefore it was limited. There were others that were saying this is an author's right and it has to be perpetual like any other kind of property. And I thought, well, this is also the period when we saw the rise of newspapers. And newspapers are well known to have played a great role in, for example, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And we often think about freedom of the press and democratic revolutions as going together. And I thought, well, then what about news? I mean, were there debates? And what was interesting is that actually very few people talked in any kind of positive terms about treating news reports or journalism as a form of literary property. There were a few efforts in the 18th century to say, well, a poem or an original story or an essay that appeared in a newspaper or a journal should be protected, should be treated as literary property, just like a novel or a learned treatise. But nobody thought that news reports should. And in fact, the few voices that I did find on that said it would be absurd to treat accounts of current events as a form of property. So that again, just raised the question of at what point did it become something that writers and publishers were interested in and what explained that change? And I think the metaphor was that reporters don't create news, they just sort of collect it. And that's the difference. But a lot of the news at the time and to this day isn't really narratives about events, but really the recording of, say, financial transactions. I think a lot of the cases that you, you looked at were around these things called price currents, or these reporters were basically reporting on commercial information, which was very valuable and required a lot of effort to collect. Was there a difference with respect to news about political events, news about military events, and news that was strictly commercial? Yes, I think that is a distinction that we can make. It sort of makes sense to me that the first case in the United States, in fact, it's one of the earliest recorded copyright cases in 1829, involved a price current, which is the term that's basically used for a weekly or twice weekly or even daily publication that is providing information about market transactions. So often it's the prices at which goods are trading in 
various cities, or it could also include ships that have come in with information about their cargo, which would be interesting for people engaging in trade. It could also tell you the rate at which bills of exchange are trading and currency and things like that. And these indeed were seen as something that was very labor intensive and that it was very important to build the trust of subscribers. They were also forms of publication that did not contain a lot of advertisements at the beginning. And I think that that was one area why the specialized business press became particularly upset when general interest newspapers copied prices or market information about market transactions or even short little narratives about market trends, right? Which were a form of analysis. They weren't just data. They were also interpretation of the data. And so this was the kind of material that was the subject of the first copyright case involving what I would call news. And it was indeed financial news. I think one of the messages in your book is that when the number of players is relatively small and when they can collectively enforce rules, rules that look a whole lot like copyright will emerge and that these different newspapers will come to some gentlemen's agreements of some kind about how they, they share information, how they use each other's information. One of the stories that I liked the most was about these newspapers that would get together and agree to pay for someone to go out and meet the ships when they came in from Europe. And the agreement was that if you didn't contribute to this effort, then you, you couldn't really broadcast this information. To what extent did this collective gentleman's agreement among newspapers do a lot of the work that later folks wanted copyright to do? Absolutely. I think these kinds of private arrangements are key to understanding how news was produced, how it was distributed, how it was circulated, certainly through the entire 19th century and into the early 20th century. So the story that you're telling is about the Harbor News Association in New York in the 1840s. And there are earlier examples going back to the 1820s. But the Harbor News Association was a group of six New York papers that realized that they were racing and competing with each other to get just a tiny edge in terms of collecting news as it was coming in on ships. The same thing would happen with the Telegraph. There was this sort of recognition that instead of competing with each other to all run to the Telegraph station at the same time and send the message and everyone pay for it, perhaps we could come to an agreement where we would share any news that we collected with each other and we would then exclude anybody who did not participate in the arrangements. And that is indeed the sort of basic principle. And I describe in the book as a fundamental shift in the middle of the 19th century. It doesn't happen on a dime, but it happens over a period of several decades. You have this shift from a world in which each editor is developing relationships with other editors around the country and they're exchanging news with each other and they're freely reprinting. They develop norms of giving credit and attribution, but there's this exchange of news after publication. And then the press association model is one where you make your arrangements before you even publish the news, right? You know that this is the list of the other people that I'm going to provide this information to, and they're also going to provide their original reporting to me, and I'm going to be able to use it. And hopefully I'll be the only one in my market, in my local city, mm -hmm. who will have access to that right away. And it might be that there's no copyright at this time on, on newspaper articles, or at least it's not recognized. And so they might say, well, perhaps 
arrival across the town is going to copy it after I've printed it, but at least everybody will know that I was the one who had it first a day or two earlier and that I have it because of my relationship with this press association. Yeah, what I found interesting was that the idea of plagiarism and the idea of piracy were were oftentimes confused with one another and that sometimes the real disputes were over credit and over recognition rather than over the monetary benefits that accrue from releasing this information. Yeah, I was fascinated to find that that interest in credit goes so far back. I mean, it's something that's fairly familiar now in journalism that we expect and that there would be a sense of shame if you were to reproduce a story that had been broken by another newspaper or magazine. If you don't give some credit to that, you're violating industry norms. Mm -hmm. And so one of the chapters of the book is sort of about how these editors are groping towards that. There are no professional schools yet for journalism in the 19th century. There are no trade associations until the end of the century. And yet you can see them communicating with each other across their newspaper pages and shaming each other or praising each other, whatever the case may be, in order to sort of work towards or try to impose certain shared norms. You had a couple examples of early examples of fake news, which I, I found interesting. And this was done as a way of rustling the plagiarizers and the copiers and the pirates out of the bush, so to speak. And what I found interesting was that in some cases, it really did make the pirates look bad. And in other cases, it made the ones that were publishing the fake news look bad. And so the different parties would try to make each other look bad as a result of these fake news. Could you tell us a couple of those stories? Yeah, there was one where it was a story about a war in 1830 in which this is right that era that you were talking about where the New York newspapers are competing very fiercely with each other to get just a half a day or a day ahead in terms of European news. Of course, this news has taken weeks to cross the Atlantic, but a few hours in the New York market was already seen as something incredibly important. So what they did, what one of them did one day is there was a non-member of their little association who they saw was often copying from them without credit. And so they said, we're going to set a trap. And they printed an early edition of their newspaper with a, a fake report of the outcome of a battle basically inversing who had won. And they only distributed copies of this to their rivals in hopes that they would take the trap and reprint it. And apparently a couple of them did. Most of them did not because there were already at that time multiple ways of verifying. And if nobody else was printing it, it would start to look suspect. And newspapers were already putting bulletin boards in front of their offices with late breaking news. So it seems like very few were actually caught in this particular trap, but the real repercussions afterwards was, as you're saying, there was a debate and there was a condemnation of the group of papers that chose to do this. And they said, it's much worse to deceive your readers. It's much worse to lie about what happened and invent fake news than to simply copy news that's already in circulation. This whole idea of the sweat of the brow doctrine, which we alluded to earlier, and we'll have opportunity to comment on a couple more times. There's definitely a difference between long-lived content, which is going to continue to be fresh every time you read it, and sort of hot news, right? Where the passage of time is enough to cause the value to deteriorate. So in that case, if you get the information an hour later, there's some kind of delay because of just the technology of reproduction, then the original provider is not really concerned. 
But if the information is delayed in any event because you're pushing news to another time zone or whatever, then you don't have this protection. We're going to get into that, I think, later. But can you talk a little bit about this idea of the, I found this title, the Knights of the Scissors, to be super interesting because this is really all about compiling news. So this would be for the weeklies or this could be for anybody who's compiling news that's no longer hot, but it's still relevant. It's still interesting. It's still stuff that people would want to read. When I was initially looking at 18th and 19th century newspapers, I noticed, of course, a lot of stories were were reappearing in other newspapers. And so the image of cutting and pasting or copying and pasting immediately comes to mind. And I was looking for evidence of the scissors. I wanted to know if this is actually what they're doing. And indeed, it makes sense that rather than writing out by hand, retranscribing an article and then having somebody in the printing shop actually reset the type based on your handwritten transcription, they would indeed cut out columns of a newspaper or cut out paragraphs and then assemble them together and maybe make editorial notes. You can find examples in collections where certain words are crossed off or certain words are added. And so they're editing, right? They're editing and they're repurposing content that's in circulation. And so by the middle of the 19th century, the image of the scissors editor or the Knights of the Scissors becomes probably the single most common way of describing journalistic work. And it's used both positively and negatively. That's what I found interesting is that it's used negatively. It's content curation, right? More than anything else. We would now probably call it content curation. And there were compilers and editors who took very seriously the task of looking through as many newspapers as possible and checking information against multiple sources, choosing the article that they thought would be the most likely to inform their readers or the most likely to delight their readers or make them laugh, whatever the goal was. And so this act of compiling was taken very seriously. It has a long tradition, obviously going back to the compilation of biblical texts and the compilation of philosophy in the Renaissance. So there were editors that could be quite learned and can take this quite seriously. And the reason that they could describe this as positive was they would say, well, we are taking the time to put the best possible version or the most coherent version or the one that we see looks to be the most reliable based on all the accounts we were able to read. And that is a service for readers, right? That is curation. And of course, it was also used to mock editors as being lazy or as appropriating the work of others. And so it had these two sides. I often found throughout the accounts in the 19th century. Well, I mean, this is really what Facebook is, right? I mean, Facebook does not do any original reporting. It just curates the original reporting of others, but it does the work of sorting through and sifting through all of these periodicals and finding the articles that they think you're going to like. Well, except that when it's done by an algorithm, it raises all sorts of other questions. And there's the algorithm we know is very personalized and is trying to elicit certain kinds of responses from us and to target advertising that will go along with it and so on. And so I think actually that makes it all the more valuable to look at the history of compilation, look at the history of news aggregation as something that goes back and think about what is lost when you lose that human element, right? Of, you know, somebody that's actually making a decision based on comparing different versions and maybe editing them. And I think we are starting to see, of course, newspapers and magazines and also born digital journalism projects 
that are introducing more human curation, right? Combining the role of professional journalists with the automation that was all we had at the beginning in a lot of these aggregators. Right. So I want to get to AP versus INS. It's sort of the, the linchpin of your book, and it's sort of the critical legal case that most folks who study intellectual property spend a lot of time on because it, it articulates this sweat of the brow doctrine and it creates a common law right. Could you talk a bit about this? There's lots of parallels in other areas, right? The stock ticker cases, for instance, that supported this notion that the folks who do the heavy lifting of creating this information or collecting this information or aggregating this information have the right to derive some kind of economic benefit from their efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, there was a lot of discussion when I was first beginning this project back in 2009. There was discussion about whether or not if copyright could help newspapers, perhaps this common law tort of misappropriation that comes out of the INS case, perhaps that could be the solution. And I thought, well, this is really strange. I want to now go back and find out why did this case happen? Why did it happen when it happened? And if we're trying to draw lessons based on it, or we're trying to see it as a potential principle that might have relevance in the digital age, then we sort of need to go back and understand where it came from and what effects it had in its day. Well, the basic thrust of this was that by the early 20th century, it was pretty obvious to most big newspapers and to the press associations, and most importantly, the Associated Press, that copyright wasn't going to solve a particular problem that they had. And that problem was the rapid reuse of material by direct competitors, namely other press agencies. And the whole system of cooperative news gathering is based on what we were talking about before, that in order to make members give you their news, you have to ensure them some kind of exclusivity. You have to provide a mechanism so that all of the members of the Associated Press will have an incentive to do their local reporting, send it in, and then have it be redistributed out. And if you can't protect that news report, that consolidated report, then the whole thing could fall apart. You've got a collective action problem. So they realized that copyright wasn't going to solve this problem because copyright could only really be used to protect the expression of the news. And it would take time to protect that. You'd have to go to court and try to get an injunction and so on. And so what they wanted was some kind of legal remedy that would be very dissuasive because it would protect the news itself. It would protect the factual details of the news, but only for a certain small amount of time, right? Their goal was not to say, okay, we should be the only one who could ever announce this story ever, but during a certain amount of time so that they could recoup their investments in having gathered the news. And they wanted it to be valid, this property right to be valid, even in cases where a competitor might slightly alter the language and then you'd get in a courtroom and there'd be a discussion about whether or not this was copyright, right? So they wanted to basically stop direct competitors. And it happened during World War I, and so readers can go to the book to look at all the, the context of it, and I think that context is important. But the legal principle that we're talking about is this idea of a quasi-property. The court said, well, any newspaper reader or anybody out there, as soon as they learn the news, would be free to repeat it, would be free to discuss it, and so on. But it's not right for direct competitors, another press agency, and newspapers that own presses to free ride on the labor of the Associated Press. And so what they got was this 
tort of misappropriation that basically says for as long as the news has commercial value, no direct competitors may republish it. And that was indeed in the context of time zones and the fact that you could use the telegraph to send news from East Coast newspapers and have it printed on the West Coast at the same time or even earlier than the AP member papers were printing it. Because it wouldn't make much sense to publish news in San Francisco at three in the morning or one in the morning. It would disrupt the whole schedule. So in that intervening time, you're able to transmit the news by telegraph. So you had this specific context with a different technology, a very different economic situation for newspapers. Newspapers were very profitable at that time. They didn't yet face any competition from radio, let alone the internet. So there was no competition in using breaking news to sell advertising and to sell newspapers. And of course, that's not the situation today with the internet. So I try to show how the origins and genesis of this case, but then I also try to show that, well, actually, it may not be that big of a turning point as people have assumed in the world of journalism. It's not that clear that just all of a sudden there was no more copying or there was no more rewriting of news. I really don't think that's the case, but it was a legal victory and it is a legal milestone in the sense that it expanded, it created this new intellectual property right that goes in some ways far beyond what copyright does because it can protect also the factual details of the news, not just the expression. There's a lot of other interesting details about that case. In particular, I was interested in how the telegraph had changed. So previously, when there was limited bandwidth and there was more or less a monopoly in telegraph services in, in the U.S., the cooperative journalism associations worked with the telegraph company to limit the transmission of news by competitors. So in a sense, you didn't really need to have any kind of quasi property because you had control of the bottleneck that would allow for the dissemination of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then also maybe talk about the postal service, because I found it fascinating to learn that the U.S. government had since the very early days, more or less subsidized the dissemination of newspapers. That's right. There's a lot going on there. And I rely on Richard John's book, Spreading the News, which was a book that was about the early American Postal Service. And he's the one who really stressed the importance of that 1792 Post Office Act, which included a lot of provisions. But for the circulation of news, the two most important ones were that newspapers would receive a much lower rate of postage than private letters. So in effect, merchant correspondence was subsidizing the circulation, the distribution of newspapers from a very early date. And then the other one was that every printer or publisher of a newspaper had the right to distribute a copy of their newspaper free of charge through the mail to as many other newspaper publishers as they wanted. And so these were what became known as exchange lists. And so they would usually be an exchange editor that would manage these relationships and would read through these papers. And that is how, you know, it's not just a custom of newspapers relying on each other. It's the postal law that says you want to send two newspapers through the mail to two different newspaper publishers. That's great. You want to send 600. You can do that too. And big newspapers did that, sent hundreds of newspapers out and received hundreds of newspapers back in exchange. And usually they weren't paying the subscription on these either because they were exchanging their copies. And they might then at some point decide that certain papers weren't worth it, so they would get rid of it. I mean, that's truly remarkable. You mentioned in the book that 
a typical letter might cost a dollar. A newspaper would cost a penny. And then if you're sending to another newspaper somewhere else, it's free. I mean, this is a huge, huge subsidy. Was this intended to knit together the country or to promote public discourse? What was the motivation behind that provision in the Postal Act? Well, again, I'm, I'm relying on Richard John, but also Richard Kilbowitz. These are the two historians of communication that have done a lot of work on the role of the post office in disseminating information. And indeed, I think you can make that argument. You can see that this is an early republic. They're all very aware of the fact that this is a vast territory, that there are going to be regional differences. There already are with questions like slavery, right? And that in order for democracy to function on such a wide geographic scale, the post office is going to be crucial. And it's by sending newspapers through the mail that we could have the possibility of facilitating the circulation of information. Now, we talked about financial information before, but one concern of the post office was to, you know, limit speculation by making sure that information about prices is actually disseminated widely so that the fears of sort of nefarious speculation could maybe be dealt with in that way. And then with political information, yeah, it's about cultivating an informed citizenry. And it's not hard to find quotes from founders about the role of newspapers. And you got to make the connection to the post office because otherwise people aren't going to be receiving these newspapers and otherwise news from the state capitals or from the national capital is not going to make it out to the hinterland. Today, we have similar debates about the universal availability of high-speed internet. Broadband, yeah. And how there's lots of parts of the country that don't have access to high-speed broadband internet services, and that this is potentially a threat to democracy in some way. That's absolutely right. And there was a discussion during the 19th century about the telegraph. There was lots of opportunities, lots of discussions about nationalizing it, putting it under the control of the post office for these very reasons. So that by the end of the 19th century, you've got people, you mentioned that there were these collusive deals between the telegraph companies by the end of the century, it's Western Union has come to dominate the entire field, and they're making exclusive deals with Associated Press. This is the same era that Rockefeller and Standard Oil and other companies are creating these means through vertical and horizontal integration and then collusive deals with the railroads, you know, in the case of an oil company or a steel company, and collusive deals with the telegraph in the case of news companies or, or news associations. And so there was a lot of backlash against that. In fact, when the Associated Press pushed for a special copyright law in news in the 1880s, one of the main reasons that that effort was defeated was because of their association with Western Union and this idea that they were going to be able to monopolize the dissemination of information if small town editors did not have access to the same news reports as the members of the Associated Press in the big cities. And so when the control of the telegraph was disrupted and open access or what we might think of as net neutrality of its day kicked in, that's really what motivated the Associated Press to try and crack down because they didn't have a technological way of doing it. So they wanted to have a legal way of doing it. The other thing I found interesting about the case is that the protagonist INS is the Hearst Corporation and that Hearst was actually a member of AP and many of his newspapers belong to the Associated Press. And so his, his offices for INS were co-located with offices of member 
organizations within AP. So he would just simply go upstairs and grab the news and bring it back down. And Hearst wanted his other newspapers. He was willing to pay Associated Press for the news. That's right. The Associated Press has changed a lot since then. I think it's important to point that out. I mean, now it's open to anybody who's willing to pay to be part of the network. And that was not the case during the late 19th and early 20th century. These franchises were very closely guarded. They were of great financial value because it was basically you had an exclusive right to that news report in a particular city or a particular, if you know, you were the only evening paper in that city or the only morning paper in that city and so on. And so Hearst did have AP franchises for some of his papers, but not all of them. And so that was the issue, but he knew perfectly well that those were the rules of the association and that he would be violating them if he were to share information between the editorial staffs of a paper that was a member and a paper that was not a member. Of course, that's difficult to do, but that's a situation that was arising and the AP was aware of it. And some people in the AP used these kinds of examples to say, well, it's this sort of exclusive, it was the protest right. It was basically, if you had the franchise in that particular city, you could protest, you could basically vote down or veto of the application of a new member. So there were some people that were saying, oh, we should open it up and so on, and others that were, you know, tightly guarding onto that. And it wasn't until the 1940s that that situation changed, actually as a result of another Supreme Court case. But yeah, so Hearst would have liked to do that, but it really showed the fact that the information was leaking in that way and that they had to go after leaks, and not just with Hearst papers, but with quite a few others, shows the very sort of fragile nature of creating exclusivity through these contractual relationships with something as time-sensitive as nudes. Now, you don't talk a lot about contemporary intellectual property. You kind of allude to the Feist case, and you mentioned, I think, the NBA case. We're still trying to protect the news. Efforts are being made all the time by newspapers and journalists to protect their information, to protect their headlines, to protect any aspect of what it is that they create. And in general, it's a very difficult thing to do today. Could you tell us what's the status of the hot news doctrine today? How difficult is it for journalists to protect, if not the actual content, the product of their work, the sweat of their brow? Well, I think this is an opportunity for me to explain that if I were to begin the book today, or if I had begun it, let's say, five years ago instead of 10 years ago, I think that maybe INS wouldn't have been the linchpin of the book. So the fact that people were talking about the hot news doctrine around 2009, 2010, 2011, that made me pay it very close attention mm -hmm. to the longer history of this distinction between expression and facts or ideas which is a central distinction in copyright, but it, it really drew my attention to that point, how difficult it is to protect information independently of its form of expression. But now the issues have changed, I think. I mean, I think that that's no longer the main problem. Now the problem is things like, well, what if you only copy a very small amount? Then you're dealing with the sort of limits of copyright in terms of short excerpts. Or what if you're just copying a title? like the headline of a news article, as you're saying. Well, that's a problem because copyright in the Anglo-American world has not tended to protect short phrases or titles. But then you have people that make, well, the headline is a special thing. It's not just a short phrase. It's not just a title. It's crafted very purposefully in order to attract attention. It 
So therefore, it does involve create creative labor and so on. And yet, titles are also how we document our sources. And if we protect a title from not being able to reproduce it without paying a license, then how could you even cite the title of a newspaper in order to do research and that sort of thing? Well, somebody said, I'd say, well, as long as you're not competing directly. But then again, you're back to this question of it's not copyright. It's something else that's closer to perhaps unfair competition that you're trying to develop as a remedy. The current situation is very much evolving. In the last few months, there's been developments in several countries. I can think off the top of my head, what's going on in France, where I'm based, also what's going on in Australia. In France, there was a new copyright law that was passed. First, there was a European Union directive in 2019, a new copyright directive, which includes a special neighboring right, a related right to copyright for press publishers. And this was designed precisely to try to give newspapers and magazines and web publishers greater bargaining power with Google and Facebook, which were so reluctant to ever pay anything mm -hmm. for the reproduction of headlines and short excerpts, whether it's on the search page or on a news aggregator page or on Facebook's social media. And so France transposed that into national legislation. The back and forth continued and it's gone to court. And now the latest in the last couple of months is that some deals have been passed between Google and various news publishers in order to compensate them in some way for being able to display and use their content. And in Australia, there is a bargaining code that was passed earlier this year. And Google fairly early on decided to make a deal with Murdoch's News Corp and other. You can go read about this. But Facebook very sort of dramatically pulled all the news, the professional news content from Facebook in Australia, leading to a major outcry and leading to sort of fiddling with the legislation. So in the end, it's sort of really all about bargaining power and the different instruments, different types of intellectual property are being invoked mainly to try to help the bargaining power of publishers because the traditional rules of copyright don't really help in these situations where what we're talking about is publishers that want their content on social media and want to be indexed. And so the argument that, oh, well, you've clicked on the terms and conditions, and if you don't want your content to be indexed, then just say no, and we won't index it. We've kind of moved beyond that now, and both sides have realized that they need each other in some way, but we're still working out exactly how it's going to work. And for the moment, of course, it's very unbalanced. It's very much the big tech companies that have the upper hand. I was wondering if you could speculate on the quality of journalism and how it relates to journalists' ability to protect their work. If you can't compete based on the quality of your work because it can be immediately copied, then you have to kind of compete to be microseconds faster or you have to get in front of people's faces much more aggressively or quickly. A lot of people have been critical of journalists for reducing their quality over the years because of creating clickbait and so forth. But others are, are very supportive of this more open, democratic access to news and access to news channels. How is quality affected by the concentration versus openness in the media industry? Well, I think our media landscape is just so much more varied than it was in the, most of the period that I'm studying in, in the book. In other words, We've got lots of 
quality journalism, long-form journalism, where these problems of immediacy and clickbait and whatever are not the issue. And there's a kind of, in some ways, a return to an interest in and a willingness among certain subscribers to pay and to support journalism through subscriptions, right? Rather than relying so heavily on advertising. And then there's the whole sort of world of social media, which is very different than the traditional newspapers. I think the problem is precisely that if you're unbundling the newspaper, basically, if you're treating every article as an independent piece of content that needs to be monetized, then of course it's going to put even more pressure on journalists and editors to produce things that will travel well, right? Because that's the world of engagement and the world of retweets and likes and so on. Of course, then it's not surprising that there's going to be this pressure to produce things quicker and to produce it in a way that will attract attention, attract as much attention as quickly as possible. But it's not the only kind of journalism out there. So I think that one of the main challenges, and I think about for students, for example, is how do you, being a little bit older and having grown up in the world of print and still liking to go to the library and read books, I try to sort of stress this fact, this need to go back and think about the role of compiling, to think about the role of comparing and paying attention to the different types of information and the different perspectives that we get depending on the medium and depending on the mode of conveyance and so on. So I think it's an exciting time in terms of the sheer variety, but it's also a very scary time in terms of worrying that certain people are only relying on this formation of bubbles and the tunnel vision that can come from just clicking on things. Yeah, I mean, clearly curation is something that is desirable and people are willing to pay for good quality curation of the news and then good quality curation of journalism itself. Will, thank you so much for joining. This has really been fascinating. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's a really great book. So if you're interested in legal history, if you're interested in contemporary issues around copyright and kind of where they come from and looking and seeing how there's really nothing new under the sun, check out this book, Who Owns the News? Will Slaughter. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Greg.